Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye. And and Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin, man, what have you been up to? It's been like a week and a half. Let's address my audio first and foremost. My apologies, guys. The audio is not going to be great. Not for the episode. The episode's going to be fine. But the preamble. I'm moving out, so we packed our mic in. <laughs> moving back home with your parents, eh? Moving up in life. <laughs> Moving, yeah, I know, right? Like living, living the dream, living the dream. Yeah, but on my side of things, dude, it's it's been a lot of house packing, just uh, getting everything ready, going back and forth to my parents' house. On the business side of things, we sent out quite a bit of mailers recently, about twenty to thirty thousand, because the market is slow. Let's talk about that a little bit, because you paused the wholesaling side for a bit. Yeah, you guys are putting some peel back on the fire. Is thirty thousand significant amount of fires for you guys? A lot, a little. Why? What? What's leading to that? Yeah, so I'm handling call volume. From our past experience, 30,000 has led to, depending on which market, it could lead to like 40, 50, sometimes 60 calls, Yeah, which is a lot of call volume for one person to handle, especially if I got to go check the comps and so on and so forth, do all the due diligence and analysis. And so for the sake of not being overwhelmed at the moment, we're going to start with 30,000 and see what kind of our rate of response is going to be. Because keep in mind, we haven't sent mailers for a while now. So I don't know if the response rate has changed, but we've changed our mailers as well. And the first time in a long time to address current market conditions. So we pointed that out. I think I might've showed you a copy actually. Yeah, yeah, you did. So we wanted to call things out. It's like, hey, look, some buyers might've stopped buying, but we are still interested to try to make it a little more unique. Who knows? Maybe the other wholesalers are doing that as well. Mm-hmm. And let me think what else, man. So yeah, we closed on our property, our North Bay property. So that's good. That one's been sold off. That was a sale, right? Yeah. Yeah. We held back a VTB of 73 or 74 K and it's only up to 80% loan to value. Right. So a lot of margin in there. So found that pretty low risk. And lastly, our flip is going well and Windsor closed on a flip and the game plan is two weeks of renovation. So if all goes well, we're going to list it by the Monday of next week and then hopefully get it sold quickly. And lastly, refinances. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> that's yeah, going to be yeah. interesting. That's a lot. lot. It can be so busy, man. Yeah, how about you, man? How's uh, everything going with you? Um, it's good, man. All these uh, renovations that I have going on are kind of coming to an end, hopefully during the month in March, like literally every single one. The Kirkland Lake Nineplex is finally getting fully done. That one I had like basically like two units vacant for way too long. And then a third unit came vacant. And then I was like, okay, now I really need to fucking deal with this. So that's three units there. It's a struggle, man. Like in like these really small areas to find good price, like contractors is a struggle. And I don't know, I just kind of, I kind of kept asking around to different people. And then eventually it's a new property manager that I hired that then had someone in her family that would down to do the contracting work. He seems to be pretty good. Quoted me like, five grand for like a hallway, eight grand for one. And then I was like, okay, this is probably way too low. And he's probably going to come back with an increase, which he did. And it was still like really low. So I was like, fuck it, fine. What was the hallway? Like, what do you mean by hallway? Uh, I'll show you pictures later. It's really hard to describe. Like basically like, you know, in like a multi-unit, like the hallway is like a big hallway. <laughs> like it's legit yeah, hallway. Common areas. Yeah. 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 Common area. That was like five grand. And then he came back. To and do said, what? Just like paint it? And new flooring. 
And I was like, oh. I was like, this makes zero sense. Five grand for new flooring for like a pretty lengthy like hallway. And then he came mm-hmm. back and he's like, oh, sorry, like I messed up the materials cold. Like it's gonna like I need like 10 grand to do it. I'm like, nah, like I, I was like, yeah, that's a sizable jump. And you already said flooring is included. And then he came down to seven and then I said six and we're ending up doing it at six, which is still like really good. But that's like one example. And then he basically tried to increase costs on the other units as well. And we just kind of negotiated. It's expected though, right? Yeah. Small area, small city, not too many contractors, not the most professional. Like it, he's a super nice guy, not to like shame him or anything like that, but yeah. we'll kind of see where it goes. But I am trying to buy, because you and I have now sold off a single family house, a duplex, and then I'm actually selling off. We have an offer accepted on that single family house that I bought from you guys in Sudbury. Yes. Back yeah. in like 20... On market or off market? I don't know when we bought it, but whatever. No, we no, did you, you sell guys. it on the market? Oh, we sold it on the market. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay. I messaged, I messaged Tristan. I was like, yo, let's just throw yeah. it up. And like, we had it up for rent at the same time. Yeah. And then I talked to my partner. I'm like, honestly, like random single family house like, i'd rather just move like sell it if we can yeah. so we threw it up for sale at the same time we got an offer i think like two or three days after we listed it at asking price but it's conditional until wednesday so let's see what happens if that firms uh-huh. up but the way i'm looking at it is that is basically four units that i would have sold off in the first couple months of the year so i'm trying to buy i'm looking at a uh, six bucks right now i'm not gonna talk about <laughs> where because it's still on the market i haven't locked it up yet and <laughs> you and I know how that shit goes when we talk about some yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. and then people kind of come in after. But You've already disclosed too much information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, eh? <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking at that in a fourplex. So hopefully one of them kind of come through. I'm just trying to, because uh, I was talking to someone about this yesterday, like really just repurpose the portfolio, reallocate, right? Not really trying to grow, not really trying to shrink it. But so we'll see how it goes, man. Make it more efficient, right? Take yeah. what you have. Oh, I was Keep talking the same passage under it. management, but with much lower yeah, risk yeah. and much better assets i was talking to my dad about this man. I, he was like why would you like sell stuff and then buy stuff like he's like you're selling in a down market and i'm also like as long as you sell in a down market and buy in a down market it doesn't really matter and then the other side of it is ultimately it's like that would have been three furnaces three roofs three lawn care and and snow plowing like maintenance contracts right all that shit that now gets rolled up into one possibly even for more units right so we'll see how it kind of plays out yeah my dad Said the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. was asking me about it. I was like, I don't even want to explain it. <laughs> it's impossible, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna jump straight into today's episode. We have Corey Spurl. He's an ultra successful real estate investor and entrepreneur based in British Columbia. He's been investing for over two decades. So a plethora of experience in real estate investing. So he's seen a lot of cycles in his time and he specializes in multifamily projects. So we go super heavy into multifamily investing, the MLI select program, how to get into multifamily investing, the underwriting process, the risk of it. Because right now, multifamily investing is a hot topic. Every investor wants to jump into it. And there's a ton of courses on multifamily investing. But as we know, it was similar to the Burr strategy when Mayu and I were going through it is, is that all strategies work fine, but there's risks to it that are not bought to light. So we actually jump into some of those risks in today's podcast, which is rarely done in any other episode I'll listen to. So this one's going to be super unique. I had a great time interviewing Corey and I say I because Mayu wasn't able to make this episode. But regardless, we're going to jump into it now. If you guys enjoyed this episode, leave a five-star review and uh, yeah, enjoy. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Corey Spurl. I pronounced that right this time, right, Corey? Well, Spurly, but you can try Spurly. again. It's okay. Oh, man, I already forgot it. <laughs> Corey, how's everything going? Awesome. Awesome, Austin. I want to thank you for having me today. I'm looking forward to this. 
Awesome. And for those who don't know who you are, would you be able to give maybe a quick 30 second minute intro into what it is that you do? Austin, thanks. So my name is Corey Spurley. I'm a real estate investor, born and raised in Saskatchewan. You know, I've lived in Alberta and BC. I've been investing for 22 years. So I started in single family. I moved almost exclusively into multifamily around 2004. So I've been doing it for about 18 years. I bought 12 apartment buildings during that time, six of which joined with joint venture partners. And I continue to invest today as well as teach others how to do the same. Awesome. So I can already tell today is going to be a fun episode because I'm kind of at that stage where I've been investing in single families, duplexes and smaller multifamilies. And I think it's about time, especially with what's going on in the market, which we'll talk about as well, to make a transition into the bigger stuff. So I guess let's get started off with the very basics. How did you get started in real estate investing? What market did you choose? And how was your first couple of years of investing? Interesting how I started. So it was about my first house in the year 2000. It was a house hack. So at the time I was living in Saskatchewan, I was living in Saskatoon. I had a, had a fairly high paying job, but I didn't even, even really think about real estate as an investment. I'd always rented my life. I didn't think you could make any money off it. So eventually a friend talked me into it. So I bought this house hack. I actually rented out the basement and that's how it all got started. So then um, I ended up continuing to work. I actually went to work overseas and I rented the house, which was a pain in the butt being a landlord for single family. So I decided, you know, this is, this is really challenging. There's got to be a better way to scale up. So that's how I did a JV in multifamily. And that's what really got my feet wet with there and feet realizing, you know, the differences and the power of going directly into multifamily as soon as you possibly can. So that's kind of how I got started. I did a few singles. I did a couple of single families. I did a couple of duplexes. I kind of got out of that around 2005, 2006, just because I found multifamily was just a lot easier for me, a lot simpler. Yeah. Making that jump into the multifamily space, what do you think are the biggest challenges or differences between the smaller stuff and the bigger multis? And would you be able to walk us through your first ever multi-deal, including some of the obstacles that you had to overcome? So I think there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of fear, right? When you jump into commercial, because you know, it is, I mean, you're looking at a stack of mortgage stack, like with this high of paperwork, you know, there's significant costs involved. And I think a lot of what holds people back is just the fear of the unknown. But realistically, I mean, you can talk to any investor who's done multifamily, they'll pretty much tell you the same thing, you know, they wish they would have done it sooner, right? So <laughs> I actually had a few failed deals, I had some deals fall apart, until I eventually landed my first deal. And it was not one I would recommend for starting because it was it had inherent risk. It was in a small town. It was actually in my hometown of Unity, Saskatchewan. 2,500 people, a building that was just, com- it should have been condemned. It was completely run down. I paid 29000 a door for it. Okay. It was 400 kilometers away from my home. I had just started a new job and I had a new baby. And I didn't have a property manager and I was doing this all myself. So you could say it was a baptism by fire. I took a one-year loan. It would be known as the Burr strategy today because I had a lot of vacancies. So I basically just renovated, re-rented the units, went and got a new mortgage, paid out the existing mortgage. So after two years, it was pretty good. And after three years, I sold it more than doubled my money. But it was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it kind of opened my eyes to the potential of, you know, I wanted to repeat this model on a larger scale without doing as much work. But that's really kind of what how it all got rolling. So you mentioned a one-year loan. Is that like a private money or did you get some sort of commercial financing on it? 
Yeah. So when you go to a small town, Austin, it's difficult. I mean, the lenders, the major CMHC lenders, conventional lenders, they don't really want to touch you. So I had to go to the local credit union. So it's tough for the local bank in the town to say, no, this is too risky when it's the town that they're in. I was able to land a loan. I mean, it wasn't an ideal loan. I think I paid, I think it was like 6%, which is actually pretty close to the rates you would actually pay today. But the terms are really good. But again, they wouldn't give me a long-term amortization because it was a value add, which mm-hmm. is not unlike today. I mean, it's a variable rate mortgage. Like today, if you're doing a burr, you have to do a bridge loan. You're very much doing the same thing, right? You're taking a one-year loan. So that was how I did it. I borrowed 250000 I think it was around 6% for a year. Yeah. Interest-only payments until I was able to do the successful refinance. Gotcha. And uh, obviously, one thing you mentioned there is that you wish you didn't invest in the small market, which I guess why you treated it as the flip. Now, how did you pivot out of that? Like, was there any other market you were looking at? Where are you investing now? So Edmonton was always on my radar. You know, obviously I tried and failed to have a few buildings under contract in Edmonton. And the time I was doing this was around 2005. Okay. So going back the clock a little bit, now in 2005, the multifamily market in Edmonton was, was good. You could buy a building for 50,000 a door. Okay. 2007, we had a massive boom right before the epic crash in 08, where apartment buildings, walk-ups in Edmonton went from 50,000 a unit to 150,000 a unit. So a lot of stuff was converted to condos. It just turned totally speculative. I thought, man, this is over. I'm never going to invest in Edmonton. But then interestingly enough, in 2008, 2009, things started to stabilize. And in 2010, I actually bought my first successful building in Edmonton. Now it was an 11 sweeter. South Edmonton, but it was really where I really started to establish my team. And that was when I realized that this is the market I definitely want to be in because it's got good cash flow and it's got good upside potential. And if I want to sell these buildings, there are buyers out there. I mean, you try to sell something in small town, you can hardly give it away, even if it's good cash flowing, right? But in a major market like Edmonton, it's very liquid. You know, if you want to sell your investment, you can get out of it fairly quickly. Gotcha. And going into Edmonton, one thing that you mentioned is uh, long-term potential. And I think we're seeing that conversation come back a lot more over the past year and a half or two years. A lot more investors are talking about it on public platforms. Back then, I guess, during that boom-bust cycle in Edmonton, did that worry you at all before entering the market? And do you see any sort of parallels in today's market or not at all? It's very interesting now Like when I compare because I've been doing a lot of research in Ontario. And I've talked to a lot of Ontario investors in the last couple of months who are very successful in that market. There are distinct differences. In Alberta, we've seen incredible swings of boom and bust, right? But having survived through that, I look at where we are today. Like, so 2008 was really a bump in the road for Alberta. The real crap didn't start to happen until 2014 was the peak. So right now, even in a lot of cases in Edmonton and Calgary, Single family, multifamily was worth more in 07 and 2014 than it still is today. You know, like rents in Edmonton right now are still lower than they were in 2014, almost nine years ago. So generally speaking, there's a boom and a bust every 10 years. So the market kind of goes like this, drops. It goes up a little bit, a little bit higher than drops, a little bit higher than drops. So right now we're at the point of basically having like six years of flat rents to rent decreases to where now things are really starting to tighten up. Now, I also have a multifamily portfolio in Saskatchewan Mm -hmm. and things have just really turned good there. I mean, a lot of investors coming in from Ontario and, you know, our vacancies are down and our rents are going up. Now, 
if you're a multi-investor in BC or Ontario or any investor for that matter, you guys have been pretty lucky. I mean, we haven't seen these massive swings. I don't really know 2008, but I know I talked to people in BC and Ontario about 2014 to 16, the oil crash. And it's like, what? No, those were the best markets we ever had. It just sailed right along. I mean, yeah. one of your tenants moves out, you don't have to spend 10,000 fixing. You just, you can just shovel somebody in for $500 increase and just mm-hmm. keep going. You know, it's an investor's dream that way, if you can find a property. So we went through a lot more boom and bust cycles on the prairies. But right now, I mean, I talked to one guy here. I had him on my podcast. We have identical 18 sweeters in Mississauga. Okay. So he paid, you know, 360,000 a unit for his. Mm-hmm. I have one I'm buying right now for 125,000 a unit. Well, which is the better deal? It really depends on your perspective, right? Yeah. You know, you can't just analyze it in terms of simple ROI. We're in two very geographically diverse, different parts of the country. But in general, I think right now, the rental market across the country has never been stronger. So this is why I'm really incredibly bullish on multifamily. Obviously, I prefer the prairies because that's where my team is. And I had a lot of heartburn setting up my team and having a secondary team in Saskatoon, which is the hardest part with a real estate portfolio, right? Is getting your team set up so you can drop assets and just keep adding to your portfolio. That's kind of my perspective. Yeah. Let's talk about the teams now that you bought it up. Obviously with like smaller portfolio, single families, so on and so forth, you just kind of hire a property manager. There are tons to choose from and you interview them. Now, how does your team change when you shift towards a multifamily portfolio? Do you have superintendent in buildings? Are you building your own property management company or are you like outsourcing it to other existing property manager, deal flow, all of that? Like how does things change when you get into that space? Yeah. So it takes a while to get established. So let's just talk about the buying part first. It's obviously if you're from Ontario, you're trying to buy in Edmonton. I mean, you're not on any of the realtors radar, right? So you have to kind of make a name for yourself first. So what I suggest people do is just get on the lists, get on the email lists, start making some calls, even MLS. Like I've bought three buildings on MLS, you know, and just tell people you're looking. And then once you do get a deal, the hardest part is the property management piece. Now I've got to a point with my portfolio where my property manager is essentially like my right arm. Not only do these guys collect rents, fix everything. If I'm going to look at a building, I have a building under contract. They're also owners. So they're looking at this building with me and they're going to tell me exactly how much I need to spend to get the rent I need exactly what they would pay for the building. And I've used that several times to go back to the sellers to ask for, you know, um, retrades, you know, price reductions based on their opinion. So I've become so used to their guidance now. And for example, I just did a major burr on a 17 unit in Leduc, which is just by the airport. And I almost did no work. I mean, they were the project managers. They can get contractors in to do work way faster and way cheaper than I ever could because they're doing hundreds of units simultaneously, right? They're getting blanket insurance policies across the whole portfolio. So for me, a lot of people think multi, man, it's just daunting. It's too much. It's it's crazy, a crazy amount of work. And it can be if you're doing it yourself. But for me, the, the amount of work I would do on a 40 suiter is half of what I would do if I bought a single family house and I was managing it myself, you know, as crazy as that sounds. But Building the team, you know, getting appraisers in place, engineers, environmental consultants. I know my team so well in Edmonton now that I can just, if I'm looking at a building, I can just call up an appraiser and say, what did you uh, use for a cap rate last month? Yeah. You know, I can save myself a lot of time. And so once you're on the inside circle there, and then also deal flow starts to come to you because the realtors know that you're a closer. 
So they'll send you the listings first. The property manager, they want to keep the management contract. So if one of their owners wants to sell, they're the first ones to sell. I've had so many deals, opportunities from property management companies. So yeah, once you get established, the doors really start to open. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Kind of what I'm getting from this is that you got to pick up the phone, cold call, connect and build relationships, right? And that's like something that people generally don't like to do because it doesn't pay off overnight. It could be a year long relationship fostering. And if it doesn't go anywhere, it could feel like it's been a waste of time, but it's the reality of real estate. It's not a transactional business. It's a relationship business. And one tip I got there is that basically you want to think about who is in direct contact with these building owners, your property managers, obviously, because they're managing it. Your realtors, because they probably sold it to them and thinking who else might have contact with them. Maybe tenants, not a lot of the time because tenants usually report to the property manager, maybe a superintendent in the building. If there is one, they probably know who the owner is, but just thinking outside the box and thinking who knows the owner directly and just building relationships that way. Now, one of the biggest kind of hurdles, I guess, for me, when I'm looking at multifamily buildings is the underwriting process, especially in Ontario. Maybe I know maybe not as much in in Alberta, but underwriting turnovers more specifically because multifamily buildings, as we know, is the valuations based on the income approach or cap rates. And if you can't turn over any units, you're pretty much stuck with an asset that is likely cash flow negative if it's paying rents 10 years ago. So that's the troublesome part for me is getting over that sort of hurdle because a lot of these apartments, and you probably see it, they're stuck on rents a decade ago, which is much lower than today. So how are you going about analyzing the risk and underwriting properties that come on your desk? I'm glad you brought that up. And this is, I took a lot of flack for this last week. I spoke at an event in Kamloops, just north of Kelowna here. And that very question came up. I believe in rounders, okay? So a rounder is tenants that stick around. I want tenants in my building that the demographic is typically, you know, a 50s guy, single guy, works in an auto garage, smoker kind of thing. He rents forever. I give him inflationary increases every month. And these are the guys you make money off of, okay? Now, I, I put a post on Facebook about that in BC, and they're like, no, the only way you can make money on apartments is turnover. You have to get rid of the guys to get the new ones in. And I asked the guy, I said, I said, what on earth kind of business model is that, that you can only make money by kicking your customers out the door, right? But that's the reality of being a multifamily owner or a real estate investor in these rent-controlled markets, you know, like Ontario and British Columbia. I'll give you two wonderful examples. So. In Leduc, and actually another building I'm buying right now, there's no rent control. So it's not like it used to be every three months increase. We can only raise rents once a year with 90 days notice. Now in Saskatchewan, you can do it twice a year with six months notice, but you can, there's no limit to how much you can increase it. So if I go into a building that's, I'm doing a burr on it and it's like half vacant, you know, great. I can fill the units right away and I can raise rents on the rest. Now in Ontario, for example, you're, if you're looking at a 12 sweeter, if, if you have two 12 sweeters side by side, one of them is 50% vacant, or let's say 80% vacant, needs a ton of work. The other one is like a little bit better condition, but full. The empty one is probably worth more money just because you can, you can do your thing, right? And that kind of reverse logic is just the way things are. But I interviewed Quentin D'Souza last week, D'Souza in, in Ontario, and he does a lot of multifamily. And there are ways to do it in Ontario. Distinct difference in a burr out there is it takes longer. So in Saskatchewan, I'm doing like a one-year loan. It could be very expensive, but I know I can get my end value, my ARV in less than 12 months. 
that is not possible to do in Ontario. You know, you need to do a three to five year approach. There are ways to do that. I think it's incredibly challenging. So you mentioned cap rate. So I'll look at my after cap rate, you know, what I think based on what my property manager says, like, for example, if rents are 800 bucks and he knows I can get 1200. Okay. I'm going to base my after value on 1200. Now, how much money do I have to spend on rentals to get to that point? Right. But for you in Ontario, it's a lot more complicated because you have to look at other factors. But the main advantage that you have over me is you're not getting a $200 increase or a $300 increase. You're getting a $500 or $600 lift per unit. So even if you're buying at a four cap, you can get like $100,000, dollars $400,000 lift by getting those rents. If you get like five, $600 a unit times like six. Mm-hmm. So the trick is just getting it there. Those are the main differences. Yeah, everything you said makes a lot of sense. I almost prefer kind of the strategy you mentioned because it's more scalable, right? Predictable and scalable because you know what you're getting yourself into. And one of the things, again, that I'm struggling with in Ontario is, is that you can benchmark your cap rate three to five years out. But what's going on in the current macroeconomic situation, how do you know if your cap range aren't going to get, isn't going to expand over the next three to five years? You could make educated guesses, but five years out, there's a lot that can happen from one to five years, right? So even look at the last like one year, just how much interest rates have yeah. changed. So what's happened? Like, you know, let's say we're doing buying at a six cap in Edmonton. Well, the appraisal is still saying six cap, but the lender is now scaling the loan back dramatically because of debt service coverage ratio, right? Because you have to have that cushion between your net income and your mortgage. So it's effectively artificially raised the cap rate. So when the lenders are cutting the loan back, it's essentially kind of the same thing. They're just not calling it that. Now, it hasn't showed up in appraisals yet, but it's Mm -hmm. starting to. So I'm predicting that cap rates are probably going to go up because, well, as you know, there has to be a spread between the loan you're getting and, you know, the (laughs) the cost of what the building is generating, right? The the performance. So you can't lose money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Something's got to give. Now, going back to investing in Saskatchewan, When you're buying these multifamily buildings and you're purchasing it based on its current rental, are sellers not building in the potential knowing that they could probably end up increasing rents themselves? No, given how easy it is, how flexible it is. So shouldn't it? I would almost think that a sophisticated seller would price it in or do the work and sell a turnkey solution. Or is that not the case? That is a great question. And you would think so. For example, like when I'm a seller, I buy something, I'm thinking like the seller. I am ready to go. When I go to sell a building, the units are full, they're renovated, they're top market rents. So what usually happens, especially when markets are a little softer like this, owners just don't want to spend money, okay? So back in the heyday in the oil boom in Alberta, you could have an unrenovated unit renting for top market value. That is not the case today. If you turn over a unit and you do not renovate it, it sits empty and it will sit empty until you renovate it. So I'll give you another great example, like Leduc. It was, uh, I think, 40% vacant. I think we had six empty out of 17, which is probably higher than that. But, you know, you're buying based on that income. So all the owner had to do was just fill those units with warm bodies. Like she could have lowered the rent even and sold it for, you know, 100,000 a unit instead of 80,000 a unit that I paid, right? And she could have did that in a month or even better, like did a renovation strategy and then got the rents up. So oftentimes, I think it's a case of sellers are either cheap or they don't think that they can do it or they're really chummy with their tenants and they don't want to break their hearts. Yeah. 
But you know what? These are the owners you want to find because these are the buildings that are awesome. And I'll give you another example. One building that we're buying right now in Fort Saskatchewan, which is close to Edmonton. We did a walkthrough. She spent a ton of money on the building. It looks awesome. But her rents are like $400 below market. And, you know, part of what I said, I kind of put my foot in my mouth, but we were trying to negotiate a better price because based on like $800 rents, the building's only worth 90 a door. It's not worth 120 a door, right? So then we said, look, you know, your rents are like $300 below market. And she's like, oh, really? So what did she do? She immediately <laughs> raised her rents. <laughs> Nobody moved out. And now she wants even more money. Oh, no. <laughs> so it really depends on the owner. I mean, you would think a lot of multifamily owners, most are sophisticated, Austin, yeah. but a lot of them become accidental landlords, especially yeah. from like, let's say the patriarch of the family, he's passed away. He's owned the building for years. Like, for example, this 48 unit in Red Deer. There's three kids inherited it. They're all fighting. They all want their money out. None of them wants to put any money into the project. You know, mm -hmm. so it's a downward death spiral, right? You turn over a unit, it doesn't get fixed. This breaks, it doesn't get fixed. And eventually the building's just a hunk of crap that they're trying to sell, right? Fire yeah. sale it. And that's where guys like you and I, we can go in there. We know what we have to do. We get our rents up quick. But most of the time in those cases, these people that have these buildings like this that are kind of run down, they still want full market price because their neighbor, they knew somebody, oh, well, I got 120. So they got 120. So and they'll sit on it until they get it. But now with rising rates, they can't refinance their way out anymore. Because mm -hmm. you could have just went to the bank or CMHC and took out a massive loan. Yeah, that's not so easy anymore. Also, if you have a borderline performing building and your loan is coming up for renewal, where you had it at maybe, you know, 2%, now you're mm -hmm. looking at like 4.5%. Yeah. You know, it makes a massive difference. So this is why I'm seeing a lot of motivated sellers. And there's a lot of apartment buildings for sale right now. Yeah. So uh, it's it, an awesome time. Funny you say that in Ontario, actually, there are people that I know who have purchased an apartment building, usually on the smaller side, like 10 units or eight units. And yeah. obviously getting tenants out in Ontario is fairly difficult. And they bought it when it was like 2% interest rates and they would be maybe breaking even if that maybe just like negative a hundred bucks, but they're relying on the turnover and they were not able to turn over any of the units. And now they're coming to renewal and they're going to have to get rates at commercial rates at like 8% or whatever the case is. And yeah. they went from break even or negative hundred bucks to thousands of dollars outflow with no end in sight and getting these sorts of tenants out. And I guess another point that you made that was pretty valid is, is that you're right. I mean, like some sellers might just want to sell it. Some are less savvy. Like for me, for example, if I had an apartment and let's say I was strained for cash, maybe I don't feel comfortable taking out private money. So it's like, I know I could add more potential, but I'm just not risk tolerable to take out private money and then put that all in, right? Um, kind of what I wanted to get into now is the financing aspect of things. Obviously, as we mentioned, like your debt coverage is typically how you're financing these multifamily buildings. Like upon acquisition, as you know, like the money's made on the buy. A lot of these properties are underperforming when you buy it. Like, how are you financing them? Because you're probably not getting 75% loan to value on the buy. I'm glad you asked that, Austin, because this is the big change. Okay. So before, like I'll go back to my Leduc example now, I would typically do a bridge loan because I borrowed up to 85% loan to value, interest only. So it's for a short period of time. Okay. So it's usually for a year. There's points on top of that. So let's say it's a million bucks. They're going to charge you, you know, 1%. So you're going to have a $10,000 fee. And you have to pay that fee again if you go past, you know, 12 months or your rate goes up. 
So they really put your feet in the fire to do that short term, right? Because your rate could go from six to nine, you know, if you extend it beyond 12 months. And it's a little bit tougher to qualify for that because they're usually the bank is looking just at the income of the property. But when you do one of these type of burrs and bridges, they realize that for a short term, the building's not going to be making money. So they're going to scrutinize you a little bit more and look at your credit, look at your income, which usually they don't on multifamily. So that's another thing to keep in mind if, if you're going to do one of these type of burrs. So in this case, it worked out because we paid like 85 a door. Our interim financing costs was around 10,000 a door. And with our renovations, we refinanced at 130 a door. So all in was 500 grand in a year. We pulled out 500 grand. Now, fast forward to the deal we're doing right now. Now the bridge loan costs went from like 6% to like 11%. So to do that same bird today is going to cost us over 350,000 a year just for interim financing on an 18 plex. So that's like 25,000 a door. So when you're already at a high price point, buying like that doesn't make sense. So you have two options. You either go in a lower loan to value for five years, right? You go to what CMHC can give you, or you do what a lot of investors are doing now and you go to creative financing. And the best way to do creative financing is you assume the debt that's already there because nine times out of 10, the debt that's already on that building today is less than what you're going to get from market today. You know, unless you did it like three or four months ago, chances are you don't have a 4% mortgage on your apartment building. I'd be hard pressed to find someone that, that did that because if you did it more than a year ago, you're sitting pretty. And that debt is worth a lot to an investor. So if I'm buying a building where it's got a, a 60% loan at one and a half percent, well, I want to assume that debt to buy the building. But I also don't want to put 50% down, right? So I have to bridge that gap. So this is where I would go to Mr. Seller and say, look, can you carry back some financing? Carry back like 25% of the cost until this first mortgage ends. And then I'm going to pay it all out with a new loan. And that's what I'm doing today. And that's what Quentin's doing. And that's what a lot of people are doing. Very few people are now going to do these bridge loans, or I wouldn't necessarily call that private money, but I guess you could kind of lump it in that same category. And I would call it expensive debt. Okay. Creative financing, either in the terms of an agreement for sale or a vendor take is going to be the strategy in the next two years going forward. I would say in probably a vast majority of the cases of sales, if the seller wants to sell a building. And I'm in the same position because I have joint ventures that are coming up to maturity. And I'm looking at the numbers and I'm realizing that a buyer, like if you came up to me and wanted to buy this building, it's not going to be easy for you. I'm going to have to give you something back, probably in terms of uh, seller financing. So you can actually get to where you need to go. So that's the biggest shift in specifically a value add. So value add, yeah, you need to have some kind of bridge loan to get or vendor take to get the value up or you just buy five-year buy and hold based on what the building's at. So if the markets are maybe a little bit below market, but not bad, that's always my preferred strategy because to find an owner that is, he's got it at market rents, right? Because it's boring. You just buy it at market rents. You get a nice loan from CMHC. You just run the building for five years, 10 years, you sell it for a profit. You don't have to do a pile of work. That's my preferred strategy. But if you're doing a burr today, chances are it's going to have some kind of creative financing element to it. That was definitely super helpful. It gets people's minds going, right? You don't have to just traditionally think that, oh, if I'm getting 50% loan to value, I got to put 50% down. Sellers no. want top dollar. And for them to get yeah. top dollar, they kind of have to cooperate with financing with you too, because everyone's going to be going through the same problem unless you have someone 
with institutional money who's buying all cash, which they're not really as active at the moment. That being it's a whole other okay. topic, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. I kind of want to get into joint ventureship. So are you doing LP GP structure? Like how are you structuring raising capital? Who's your target clientele when you're raising capital? Cause it's probably, I would imagine it's a lot more of a wealthy or, or well-to-do demographic. And like, what are you pitching them? Like how much, what's the timeline? What are they looking for in terms of returns? Can you get into that a bit more? Yeah. So I've done, uh, I think six joint venture deals. So I can tell you how I used to structure my deals. They were very simple. I mean, I copied a model that, you know, a lot of other people have used. Simple corporation, simple one unanimous shareholders agreement. You can set up the whole thing for a couple thousand bucks. I'd have five to six investors in there. So I'd raise anywhere from 400,000 to a million. So I probably raised, you know, five or six million in, in, in those five or six deals. So I was operating under exemptions at the time, family and friends. These were all close associates to me. But today, now you really have to be careful with only working with people who are accredited. Now, there are exemptions, right? Family, friends, business associates, people that know you well. But this is an area that's going to be under intense scrutiny going forward, in my opinion. You know, especially if you're starting up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you got to really be careful on how you're marketing it and promising returns, right? You got to be very careful with that. Like, I put on my website, I don't say what the return was, but I say, look, this is what I bought the building for. This is what I sold the building. I can tell you back in the mid 2000s, my standard pitch was 50 to 100% return in five years. And I was able to do that. And I was taking 40% equity. So the investors were giving all the money. And when we refinanced or sold, they were getting all their capital back. And then the the profits were split 60-40, 60% for the investor. So that was a model that worked pretty well, you know, when things were booming. Now I'm doing a 10-year window instead of a five because I'm realizing from the oil glut, if you bought in 2014, five years later, you're negative. You haven't made a dime. So if you've promised your investors the moon, you're not going to deliver on that. But in my experience, over a 10-year period, you're going to pay down enough equity and you should get enough cash flow and appreciation you know, to deliver a solid return. Now, I don't know what would be a reasonable amount today. I'm pretty confident I could still double in the five to 10 year period. So now I'm looking at different fundraising models. The LPGP is definitely probably the way to go. If you're buying, let's say you're going to raise like 10 million bucks and you're going to buy like five or six apartment buildings. That's definitely the way to do it. The disadvantage of that is you're sitting on money, then you're really pressured to go find deals, right? My model is I'm kind of like a sniper, right? I just kind of sit back and cherry pick deals. You know, I'm looking at, anywhere from 12 to 20 files at any given time on my desk, right? You don't really see what's going on behind the scenes. Even though I bought 12 buildings, I've probably analyzed like 500 or more. And a lot of deals, you know, you put an offer on, it doesn't go anywhere. Three months, six months later, you get a call back. Okay, now the seller has, they agree with you. Now they're ready to do a deal. So I've got several deals like that. So I have a lot of seeds planted on deals that make sense for me. But a a third option for raising capital has recently come up. And I don't know if you know much about this, but it's called crowdfunding. And there's a company out of Vancouver, they're called Addy, Addy Invest. And one of my friends actually did this. He raised all of his capital for a building that he bought in Kimberly. And I can't remember how much he raised. I think it was like a million. He's got one on there right now for like a million and a half. But you can invest in a commercial deal for like a hundred bucks. And Addy handles all the capital raising part of it. Now, 
as an investor, you need to have an offering memorandum. I mean, they're not just going to put anybody's deals on their sites. But I see that as a mechanism for picking up speed as well. But I think probably for my next deal, I'm going to stick to what I know. I'm going to work, you know, with accredited, probably have like five or six investors at 150,000 each. 150,000 is the safe number to sort of prove you're accredited. Or if you have an income of 200,000 or a combined income with your spouse of 300,000 or a certain net worth, there's all kinds of criteria to that. But I mean, if you're doing a joint venture, it's important to get a signature from the investor saying they're accredited. You're not going to stick your nose in their bank accounts and prove it, right? But you got to really be careful these days as the bankruptcies that you mentioned now. I mean, you could probably Google and find a, there's probably a dozen new ones coming out every day. You know, a lot of these guys were over leveraged. They didn't have the experience. I'm taking a lot more cautious approach now. I'm doing a longer timeline. I'm doing 10 years. I'm putting more equity in the deal now than I did before. Usually I would go 75, 85 loan to value. Now I'm probably around 70 you know, for that added cushion of safety. But I think where the market is right now, I think I'm not going to say that fixed rates have peaked. Uh, the bond is on their way down. It looks like inflation isn't going nuts like it used to be. We know where there's an announcement tomorrow, the Bank of Canada. By the time this episode airs, I'm going to be proven right or wrong. And I don't know if it's going to be a half a point or what it's going to be. But I don't think CMHC rates are going to be 5 6 8% next year. I'm comfortable buying an apartment building. I really don't think I'm going to have to renew at higher rates. But if you did take on a lot of debt, you have really high leverage, you people, you find yourself in that position. So you're at the end of your mortgage and the bank says, okay, uh, your mortgage is due. Oh, I just want to renew. And they ask you for your op statement. They say, okay, well, you're not performing very well here. We need $400,000 or we need our money back. And a lot of investors are running into those kind of margin call scenarios right now. Which is not a comfortable position to be in with your joint venture partner. Is that a thing in the commercial side that they will review your income statement during renewal and change the loan to value? Because I know on the Absolutely. residential really okay. Yeah. On the residential side, everyone already knows, but even if your property went underwater, it's pretty much auto renewal. They don't want a bunch of people to just like they can't make anyone everyone just pay back their mortgage, right? But on you're saying on the commercial residential, it's different. And that's the standard yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of points about that really quick. Unlike a single family, like the bank forces diligence upon you. So every year you have to give them your operating statements, your rent rolls, assigned rent roll from your property manager and your personal net worth statements every single year. So they can track how the building is doing. So if you bought based on a certain net operating income, if at the end of that five years, even if your building is performing the same, right? But if rates have gone up, they're going to apply that same debt service calculation. Like I just did a massive refinance. I'm in the middle of it right now. I just signed the commitment letter this morning. It's a three and a half million dollar building. And I got a loan of like 1.8. And because it's commercial, my loan is over 6%. But that was about as comfortable as the bank was lending. Now, thank God I didn't have a high amount of debt on that because I would have had to have paid that down, right? So this is why when people are drooling over CMHC's MLI Select program, you know, hey, I can borrow 95% loan to value, 50-year AM. Well, great. <laughs> but what happens after the five-year point? If you're even a half a percent higher on your rates, you have to pay that loan down. So this is one of the things with multifamily, like don't over leverage because you just don't want to find yourself in that situation. Because if you don't have the money, then you're in a four seller's position. 
So multifamily works great because you said the income is tied to the value. Mm-hmm. That's the lift, right? Every dollar of income is $200 in value. Get your rents up. Great. But if you're having a couple of bad years and you're struggling, the value goes the other way. Yeah. And the bank will do a margin call. There's, there's no question about it. So that's just an FYI. Yeah, I know. That's a very good point. I think it's true. So like when we say that multi-value, you can add value through the income. That's the fantastic point. But on the other side, financing can be an issue with multifamilies if your interest rates just blow through the roof, right? So it's almost like, why doesn't appraisal value matter if you can only finance like 50 or 60% of that appraised value? It's almost like, yeah, you're equity rich, but that's where people are getting into issues right now. They're equity rich, but cash poor, and they get into compromised positions. So I really like your perspective yeah. on all of these things. And it's something that I would say a lot of multifamily investors don't really talk about, like sensitivity analysis and seeing like, if this happens and shit goes left, how does that impact me? How does that impact my investors? And one other note I want to add on is, is that I really appreciate you taking a look at a 10-year horizon because realistically, five years, like a me- I don't consider that long-term, that's medium-term sort of thing, right? Like if we look a lot of fun performance, it's on five years and that's usually why our investors want to get paid out. But five years, a lot can happen and it's not really a super long-term view. 10 years, now whether the investor's looking only at the 10-year point or not, if they're committing to 10 years, at least on the top of your mind, you know, okay, this investor is willing to put his money or her money in for 10 years. They are long-term investors. And even if the market is different 10 years from now, you know that that investor will probably hold on for another five years. Because to begin with, they've already had that 10-year horizon. So they already have the long-term hat on. Let me just distinguish between that. So when I did five years before, it was because that was the length of the mortgage. Now I say, this is like you said, I want a commitment for 10 years, but we have an option to get out after five. So I'm not suggesting get a 10 year mortgage. You can get a 10 year mortgage in commercial, which, you know, a year ago, that would have been great. But right now I would not lock into 10 years at 4% CMHC because people that I try to buy buildings for at year two or three, the payout penalties on something like that with eight years left, the industry differential is, is substantial. So what I tell my investors is I need a commitment for 10 years. We have an option after five. So if things go really good after five, we get a really high appraisal. We can, hey, I can either A, I'll refi. We'll refi it till we die, right? I'll, we'll refi, we'll pay out all your money back. Then you have no more risk in the deal. Or the market's turned really speculative. We're going to pull the trigger on a sale. Like if you were in Alberta in 2007, you should have sold absolutely every piece of real estate that you had looking back, right? I mean, I don't necessarily know that I, I would have done that, but so... We have the option after five, right? And there has to be mechanisms for the investor to get out after five. This is also very important. So let's say, let's say you had five investors, two of them wanted out and three of them wanted to stay in. Let's say the market went really hot. Well, there has to be a mechanism for those two to get out. And that mechanism usually is in the form of an appraisal. And then if you're going to do a refinance, then instead of getting, you know, paying out everybody, they pay out the investors that want out. Because what happened in Edmonton in 07, that exact same thing happened. The market went really strong. You got a bunch of people wanted out, a bunch of people wanted to stay in and they couldn't agree. So they stayed in and then the market crashed, right? So this is why I really like the 10-year horizon with the option after five. It's a win-win. I know I'm going to have pay down, mortgage pay down. I can't say enough about that. The most experienced investors I know, they pay off their debt as soon as they can. They shorten their amortizations when they have the cash flow to support it. Now, it's different when you're in a JV, right? Because you're delivering on total ROI. You need the leverage component to get there, right? But you definitely want to have equity in deals today. You don't want to have it all debt. (laughs) 
You know, it's funny you mentioned that because it wasn't up until this entire, I mean, the past eight months where interest rates started shooting up. I would look at returns. One of the key criteria for me is cash on cash return. Obviously, so cash on cash return, for those who don't know, is your yearly cash flow divided by your net investment. And when you invest nothing, your cash on cash uh, return is infinity. But here's the issue is that if your cash flow is like, let's say 50 bucks a month and you have no money invested into it. Yeah, it's infinity technically. But what if interest rates go up 1%? Well, now that cash flow is negative. It's not like that. It doesn't necessarily capture the risk. Yes, the percentage can look nice, but you have to look at it in the fine comb, right? Because it's just percentages. You have to dig down deep into it. And that's something that honestly uh, has caught me offside a little bit. Fortunately, my entire portfolio was performing stronger, but there are some of those assets where I'm like, oh, refi, it was still cash flowing, interest rates run up. I was like, God, the cash on cash return let me down because I didn't think that far ahead. So before we wrap up, Corey, and get into our final two questions, I wanted to know, what are your thoughts on the overall opportunities in the market? And you chatted a bit about it, about the VTBs, but if you can summarize, what are you planning to do over the next year or two in the multifamily space, I guess? I want to target larger buildings. They're kind of a rarity in Canada. As you alluded to, there's a lot of these smaller buildings. Talking to Quentin last week, there's only something like 5,000 multifamily buildings in all of Ontario, which is just an incredible scarce amount of buildings. I obviously want to target larger buildings, 24 suiters, 40 suiters, up to 50 suiters. But then we're competing with the institutional investors, right? I have written offers on 100 suiters, so I'm probably going to be going after the larger stuff. My goal is I put 10 behind it, right? So if I wanted to do a million, buy a million property, I'm going to buy 10 million of property, right? So now I'm probably going to try to buy probably something like 50 million in apartments in 2023. That's my goal. So it's going to be a lot of work, probably five or six buildings, but that's kind of where I have my target set. And I think right now is a perfect time to do that in the market. So that's kind of kind of where my goal is set. Do you say you think it's the perfect time? Is it because there's less competition from institutional money at the moment, you'd say? Uh, Partially, partially, but because there's a lot of motivated sellers out there, you know, a lot of people that bought, they weren't really sophisticated when they bought, they've run into trouble, they've run aground, right? They didn't do their proper due diligence. And there's a lot of new investors that are staying away from that space right now because they see where rates are going, right? And they see that values are dropping a little bit. But for me, there's less competition and it's better. I'm all in for sure. Because I understand this business and I know that you try to time something, right? You're never going to hit the bottom. I mean, rates are, I mean, apartment values are probably going to go down this year a little bit, but nobody reaches the bottom. You know, if I see a good deal, I have a long-term 10-year hold, I'm going to buy it. I'm not even going to think twice, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That actually kind of answers the first question, which was, uh, unless you have a different answer, what's your five-year goal? But I assume it's the same as like kind of what you said right now, right? Probably, probably because buying and holding, just adding as many assets to the portfolio as possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And obviously watching your leverage throughout that situation, as you've always mentioned throughout the podcast. I guess we'll jump into the second question here is that what do you think is the biggest risk for newer investors, let's say entering into the multifamily space? The biggest risk for newer investors is a uh, lack of education and basically fear because of lack of education. It doesn't take much to reach out to a veteran, like someone like myself. There's a lot of us out there who've been successful and just learn a few things before you make an offer. It can be just a simple thing of getting a mortgage opinion from a broker before you make an offer on a multifamily building so that you know how much to offer. It could just be one tip like that, right? So the biggest risk 
to multifamily is just not being properly educated. So, you know, invest in some time, talk to mentors, a lot of free and paid sources of education out there. If this is a space you're looking into, especially if you're a young guy like yourself, I mean, you buy five properties, great. But if you buy five apartment buildings, it's probably the same amount of work, but you own a significant amount of doors more. Yeah. And it's definitely the best return on time you can get. But the mistakes can kill you, right? One wrong step, like you buy a, a building that you need a roof, you need the boiler, you over leverage yourself and you have to pay down the loan. You know, one mistake can really bite you versus single family. So I think the biggest risk is education. And the second is debt. Be careful. I would steer clear of the MLI select program because you can literally bite off more than you can chew. So just put as much equity as you can in the deal. Partner up with people that know more than you do. Example, like get two or three of you together and pool your resources together. You can mitigate your risk that way. Mm-hmm. But if it's one thing, it's definitely education. Even when I started, I thought I had some. I didn't have nearly enough. I was very stubborn. I didn't reach out to mentors until it was almost too late. And now I still reach out to mentors today. There's guys in multi that know more than I do, that I ask them for advice. Mm-hmm. So just never, never stop doing that, right? Do you have any recommendations? Do you have any programs or coaching yourself? Or do you know anyone who does that you would highly recommend? Yeah, so I have a, I have a six pillars of multifamily program. So it, it's a course that takes you through all the whole process of buying. Like I go right from planning to acquisitions, due diligence, finance property management, right to sale. And I even cover joint ventures and syndication. So it's a great program. I mean, I have over 40 modules. I have like around 60 students in the program, you know, over the last couple of years. And it's a great way to get started. It's self-taught. I do have some coaching calls in there, but it's not that expensive. It's like a thousand bucks. So, I mean, if you're just getting started, but there are obviously more expensive ones you can do. I can't think of who they are off the top of my head, but there's a lot of mentorship programs. You can probably spend 10 grand or more but you got to be careful. I mean, you got to ask someone who has a significant track record. Coaching is really on the radar now. There's a lot of gurus, you know, on Facebook and a lot of these other places that people don't have a track record, right? They're, they're generating their money from selling courses. I generate mine from investing. That's what I primarily do. That's what I love to do. But I also love to teach, right? I also love to help people along. It's easy for someone to send me a listing and say, hey, Corey, what do you think of this? And I'm always happy to do that. I'm always happy to be honest say, you know, if I was going to do it, this is what I would pay or how I would do it. Right. Yeah. Good, good point there. What I will add on is, is that, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of coaches out there and just because someone has bought a property and they're in a coaching program doesn't necessarily mean it's the good buy. Cause there's a lot of people who made the wrong decision because of all of the hype behind it. It's like, Oh, you should do it. You should buy it, take action. And then now they're stuck in a hard place. But yeah, no, that actually sounds really reasonable. Your price is $1,000 and it's 40, you said 40 videos basically to go through. Yeah, modules, but each section, it's more than videos. I literally yeah. got hundreds of hours of videos, oh, wow. but each, you know, each <laughs> section has, I have worksheets and exercises and yeah, there's videos, there's PowerPoints. I have a bunch of toolkits like mortgage analyzers. I have, a, I have an upside formula that I've patented to tell you how well your building is going to perform. So there's all kinds of tools in there as well. So, um, it's pretty popular. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So it'll be down in the link below, guys, if you're interested. Corey, if people want to reach out to you, connect with you, learn more about your journey, what's the best way to do so? Probably it's just through the contact on my website, altonequities.com. But I'm also, you know, link up with me on Facebook or Instagram, just Corey Sperly. You can look up, look me up there. Email through my website is probably best, but I'm pretty approachable. I don't bite. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions. 
Perfect. All of the links will be down below in the show notes, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, share it with a friend, comment, leave a five-star rating. It helps bring great guests like Corey on the podcast. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.